I'm Brett Coleman, and you're listening to the Sounds of the Loom podcast. afternoon or evening, depending on when this finds you. Welcome to the Sound of the Loons podcast. I'm your host, Steve McPherson. And last time out, we were lucky enough to have color commentator Kendra D. St. Aubin join us to share her insights. But this week, we're going to have to make do with sideline reporter Jamie Watson. So I guess let's go ahead and get this over with. Um, Jamie, how was Thanksgiving? <laughs> what a lovely introduction. It can only go <laughs> up from here. Everybody else know, was busy. I, I, I don't know why I enjoy so much just winding you up on anything, it's great basically. Because <laughs> because you and I have this love-hate relationship. You love to hate on me, and I hate how much you love me. I think we have I think we have a good understanding. I think of, we do. I think we're on that same page. Thanksgiving was good. It was yes. uh it was exactly what you would think a typical Thanksgiving away from family would be. You'd be with friends, you uh, with people that you enjoy spending time with. It was more of a Friendsgiving and second family giving, and it was fun. Um, now that I don't play anymore, I don't have any regret when I eat two and three and four <laughs> plates. Sure, And sure. so it was great. It was good. How was, how was yours? Well, first of all, when did Friendsgiving start? I missed this because, like, it's a thing that came up this year, and it's like everybody's talking about it, and I'm like, I missed the start of it. Yeah, I'm not like, sure. I'm just trying to sound cool like the kids do i i was gonna say this friends giving was was lit <laughs> okay apparently is that, sure. is that what they say i think the, i don't know if they say that anymore they say so i think you just do a Fortnite dance or something yeah like i'm that, totally so. i'm i'm way too i'm way too old now and i'm i'm probably glad that i don't know all the things i'll just leave that to how's your floss can you can you floss i'm gonna be honest with you steve there was one night where my wife and i looked at each other and we said like this floss dance you have you ever done it? We gotta learn this. And we both sat there in the living room and practiced. And I, and I made a, I'm a terrible husband for this. I made her do it on camera okay. while I recorded it. Okay. With the agreement that if she did it, then she that, could record me doing it. Right. And then after I saw how ridiculous it went, I was like, "There's no chance you're getting me on film." <laughs> so I have a video of her doing it. Okay. There's not a video of me doing it. I did try it. Yeah. It was uh, it was after a couple glasses of wine. It seemed like a great idea and probably looked terrible. Yeah. So it'll never happen again. Okay. Okay. I like I like I like the floss. It's good. I I, I did the same thing. I looked up on YouTube so I could learn to do it. So. Of course. It, you, I mean, look, you go to YouTube for everything. Yeah. I feel like if uh, if there was one place to do it, it would be alone in front of a mirror. Yes. But then you're also looking at yourself in the mirror, going, "What am I doing yeah. with my life right now?" I've never I've never watched myself do it in front of the mirror yet, but I know it gets the laughs from the kids. So. Well, hey, look, and that's what it's that's about. When you're, I, I when you're dad, you go full dad mode. Right. Oh yeah. You commit to it. That's what makes you a good dad. <laughs> Absolutely. Too. My Thanksgiving was good. Uh, I was with my wife's family. Uh, they have a policy of uh, you start with pie. So you get there at about 10 in the morning, and then you have a pie course, and then a little later, then you have f- f- actual food. And then after that, you could have some more pie if you wanted. So. Well, I know what I'm doing Thanksgiving <laughs> in 2019. Save, save us a spot, you're, will you? You're coming on over. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Best pie flavor? I, um, okay. Personally, uh, this is not Thanksgiving-related. I really like raspberry pie, but I'm like one of the only people Ooh. I know who's into raspberry pie. So, so do you have to make it then? Because I would have to make it. Because nobody else is bringing no, raspberry no, pie. No, no, My wife's uh, mom made it once uh, uh, sort of for me, which was great. Um, but uh, I would say of, of your general Thanksgiving pies, I really like um, pecan pie. 
So you, uh, you, and like everybody else in my family loves pecan pie, yeah. and just never was a thing for me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of feel that way about pumpkin pie. Like I know some I'm with people you. who love it. But pumpkin I'm, uh, pie. You're lying if you say it's good. <laughs> just a flat lie. Nobody enjoys pumpkin pie. I would pie. rather have like pumpkin bread. I don't know if you've ever had. It's sort of, you know, banana bread, but pumpkin. Yeah. Pumpkin bread is terrific. Pumpkin is also baking tip for all you great British baking oh, give show it to people. Me. Um, pumpkin is a fantastic sweetener for uh, if you don't want to use butter and oil and something. Like if you're making vegan really? things. Yeah, there was uh, – my wife uh, made a cake for I think one of my daughter's birthday parties and there was somebody who couldn't eat – one of those things. And so she used uh, pumpkin and it's very, it's very moist and very sweet and it's fantastic. And like the, it was like a chocolate cake. You couldn't even, it didn't have a pumpkin flavor to it, but it was a fantastic cake. So. Wow. You learn something new every day. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Have you watched the great British baking show by the way? No, but it's on Netflix uh, yes. and, and I keep scrolling past it. I highly recommend it. I, I love all the food shows. If I'll tell you this much right now, and uh, this is the hard-hitting stuff that the people turn on to the, the sound of loons for. Um, if I ever won the lottery, I would buy just a ridiculous house, but the kitchen would be the centerpiece of the house, or, okay. I'd, or I'd make it where the, the kitchen is the focal point of the house. I would hire a chef. I've got mm-hmm. two. I've got a brother and a half-brother. They're both actual real-life chefs. Okay. Um, very good. I'd either hire one of them or I'd hire somebody to come in, teach me how to cook for like six months, and then that would be what is what I would do. I would invite friends over three or four nights a week. Mm-hmm. I'd cook for everybody. I would just be a chef. I love cooking. I yeah. love it. So for me, watching uh, the Great American Baking Show, is that what it's called? Uh, the Great British Baking Show. The Great show. British one. They have an American spinoff too, yes. right? The yes. Great British one is, supposed, is supposedly the, the very good one. Well, definitely, I highly – I mean, it's, it's great. I'm not a huge reality show person, generally speaking. Uh, it has a very nice mix of – Competition, but heart. Yeah, uh, like they don't—they're not out to beat each other. I think all the bakers who are there are—they're—they're they're nice. They appreciate it's, what the other ones are yeah, doing. It's, yeah, it's competitive and it's got its a level of intensity, obviously, but it's also fairly peaceful as a thing to watch, which is good. I think you know sometimes at the end of the day you don't want to you don't want to have to dial in Game of Thrones or right. something intense. Does it have and the chop dark. nature where they're like hiding, like they're they're like hoarding the ice cream maker and right, they're right, like, right, no, you right. can't make it. Sorry, yeah, here's no, my, I want the ten grand. No, it's funny. It's light. Yeah, it's very. Pleasant to watch. See, it so. sounds right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Okay. Look, I, I think I'd love that. The missus, not so much. She gets bored with that stuff. But for me, I love it. Yeah. And, and you know who was a who was a surprisingly a very, very, very good chef cool. from the team this past year? Harrison Heath, actually. Really? Yeah. For uh, This is maybe a little known fact, but this kid can cook. Huh. He, he comes up. If you ever follow him on, like, Instagram, okay. um, he'll put these pictures up and stories up of these meals. And I don't want to give the kid credit because I don't want to make his head any bigger, but he... Uh, he doesn't need that. Yeah, he absolutely... <laughs> the kid's got some good hair and some good cooking skills. All right. Yeah. Well, I will... Uh, this, I'll have to add this to the hopper of things to ask guys on Media Day yes. next year so I can find out Can you cook? What's your chops. best... Yeah, because you did a great job with that on Media Day. Yeah, we talk... I mean, we, we talk about... You know, we talk about travel. We talk about video games, other things like that. Reading, you know, some guys are into that. Like, Bobby is very into travel. Um, so, you know, some of them I sort of know things like that but i haven't really broached the topic of cooking so cooking see and i think the thing is like i moved out when i was i actually left home when i was 16 Mm -hmm. so for me i had to learn how to cook and at first it started with like microwaving everything right and then i I turned pro at 18 and i was like living on my own in an apartment in utah so if i didn't want to 
eat every meal out at a restaurant and yeah. I wanted to cook, I had to learn how to do it on my own. Yeah. I think it's super important. I think that yeah. should be one of the first things that a player learns how to do in their career early because if you can learn how to cook healthy meals, mm-hmm. one of the best things I ever heard a coach say was your body is like a like a car, like a Ferrari, right? right? Or whatever nice expensive. My body car. is not like a Ferrari. You're, you're, it's like a McLaren, you know. <laughs> Maybe a uh, no. It's a, it, it. It's it's in the terms of a professional athlete is your tool, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you had a very nice car, you're probably going to put premium gas in it. Yeah. You can put regular gas in it. You can put Taco Bell in it. Right. Which I chose to do at 18, sure. and you, Everybody you still puts survive. Taco Bell in their car every once in a while. So <laughs> look, let's be honest. There's sometimes I still put Taco <laughs> <Sure>. Bell. <laughs> right. It, yeah. It always looks good. I it's called the three stages of Taco Bell. Stage one, when you see the big board, right, and it's like mouth watering. <laughs> it's so exciting. Stage two, you take the first bite of Taco Bell, right. It is heaven, right, and a little burrito, right, or a hard Taco Supreme, if you will. Yeah. Stage three is when you are finished, and it's the instant regret of why did I do sure. this to myself. Sure. Stage four takes place 15 minutes to two hours later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to some soccer talk. Okay. Uh, obviously, big news that Greg Berhalter is going to be the next coach of the U.S. men's national team, uh, leaving Columbus Crew SC. Uh, let's just start with how do you think he's going to be fit-wise as a coach for a men's national team? Well, Greg Berhalter, a great man. Because he went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Well, there you go. Did you go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill? That's probably why. Okay, all right, okay. Yeah, sure, he was there. He was there just a tad bit earlier than I was. Uh, I think like a decade before, and sure. uh, and before I roamed the uh, the mean streets of Chapel Hill. Right. Um, much like Greg Berhalter, but for me, I, I look. I, I like the hire. I, I think that the the one good thing about this all. And there's a lot to be said about the process of how they went about hiring him when they announced it. They had to obviously wait because Columbus was still in season. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think they did a thorough enough search where they interviewed in person enough to hear the the thought process and the, the strategic plan of enough coaches to give them kind of the broad scope of everything? From what we've heard, no. Mm-hmm. From all, By all accounts, I don't think there was enough people interviewed. I think they had their sights set on Greg Berhalter. The good thing is that I that I started with, I don't think they fell into the trap of let's find the, the biggest name possible sure. and just sign him. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it takes a, a specific type of person to understand MLS, the MLS base of players, to have a distinct system that has worked within MLS. And look, I was on the sideline. I watched Columbus crew do a very good job of picking us apart by the use of the fullbacks, creating overloads. Mm -hmm. Similarly to what we try to do with Minnesota United, haven't had the success of doing that, getting the fullbacks involved, getting them forward, getting them playing in the opponent's half. Um, I think Milton Valenzuela and Harrison Awful, two of the best outside backs at implementing that system. But I also think in Berhalter's system, you can plug and place a lot of other players like that into the system and you can be very successful with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Berhalter has an identity of how he wants his teams to play, and I think that's important because right now, while we were getting all these young guys uh, playing time the past six months with Dave Serkin as the interim coach, yeah, which Steve is exactly what we should have been doing. There right. should have been nobody called in above the age of twenty-eight. Yeah. 26, 27, 28. You, this is exactly where See you what the get, future is. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so he, he Dave Sarakin was a wonderful um, 
kind of cog in the system of what U.S. soccer needed right now. He was this, uh, you, you, you plugged him into to this, this, little, uh, this little gap in time, mm-hmm. and he did a good job of, of doing what was needed, getting the guys playing time. Now you get Berhalter in. The thing I'll be interested to see most, though, and this is maybe the challenge that I want to see uh, the box ticked from Greg Berhalter is, when you are a club coach, you have every day for an hour and a half, two hours, you're there, you see how long yeah, trainings are, you right. see how intimate those training sessions are because you can noticeably see progress each day or maybe over the course of a month or six mm-hmm. weeks, two months, a season, whatever it is. Greg Berhalter will not get that much time yeah. with the team. Yeah. So for him, he's going to be adopting a lot of different players in for two-week stretches of time and trying to get them to adapt to that system that he wants to play. But what if a team plays a different system? What yeah. if a player comes in and he's very accustomed to playing something different? Right. And that's where he's had his success. That's what he prefers to play. Berhalter doesn't have every single day with players now. Yeah. He only gets bits and pieces and spurts of time with these players. So I'm interested to see if he can still implement his style of play, his philosophy of the game on the players in a limited time. Mm-hmm. I think we as fans and supporters of U.S. soccer, we all need to be all in on this. We don't need to scrutinize everything that he does from day one. Be Don't just be accepting of everything, but also don't be so quick to be this, this new age where you want to just tear somebody down the first chance you get. And it's like everyone wants to, to tear him down, tear him down, tear him down. And he's got all added pressure, added pressure. The players feel this pressure. Mm-hmm. Let's actually give him a chance. Yeah. Let's 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 go full backing on this. Right. See where it goes with the young players that are starting to get more time, and let's give it the, the best opportunity we can. And I'd say the same thing if it was Berhalter, if it was Oscar Pereja, if they decided to go after a guy like Tata Martino. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's what they wanted to do, if that's what U.S. Soccer chose to do, there we go. So there's my long-winded thoughts on Berhalter because I think that – it's important that we go full backing on him. I think yeah. that's, that is the biggest thing. And I think he has a very good resume for being a youngish coach. Mm-hmm. It's a big opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of seems like there's... I yeah, mean, what you are sort, your thoughts you, on it? Well, you touched on it that there's sort of two sides to the coin here, which is that I think on the one hand, you know, it's not going out and getting sort of a name recognition guy from international soccer to say, you know, to bring in this sort of personality. And we've seen that happen before and backfire for, for the U.S. team, you know, um, to some extent. So it's getting a guy who's been in the trenches, who's working with the team day in and day out, who's working on a budget, you know, he's, he, and he made something good with that team. That's in a small market. Yes. Um, which, so that's one side of it. The flip side of it, as you're saying though, is that a lot of his success relied on chemistry and this, uh, playing a certain way and having guys inculcated into this, this system and familiarity with each other. And you're not going to get that, uh, when you are only having these little stints of, of, of guys getting together. Um, which is, which is going to make a, make it challenging. Certainly. It, it seemed like when I was reading about it, it seemed like, uh, it, looking at the process and what, uh, Ernie Stewart has said about it, uh, that he, he seemed to lean heavily into looking for coaches who had, had playing experience, um, which obviously Burhalter went to the world cup, uh, for the U S um, twice. Yes, this is correct. And, uh, how important do you think playing experience – I mean, this is a thing that happens across all all sports, right? How important is actual playing experience to being a successful coach? 
I think it's a part of it, and I and I think that right, wrong, or indifferent, when you have coaches, if a coach played or a coach didn't play, there is a stigma about them one way or another in a player's mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying right, wrong. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying that if a coach played in two World Cups, innately there is a level of respect and trust that you sure. go, you did it at the highest level possible and i'd be a fool not to listen to you Mm -hmm. if a coach didn't play innately there is a part of you that says wow okay like you actually never did do this yourself so there's a little maybe hint of skepticism but it's more or less the respect you command Mm -hmm. the and and that that doesn't matter if you played or if you didn't play. If you are a guy that can, can command respect from the group and you have everyone buying in and believing to the system, that's the hardest part as a coach is getting everyone to buy in to what you are trying to accomplish with the group because sometimes you buying in may also mean that you're not the biggest role to it or sure. you have a role that you maybe want a bigger piece to the puzzle in but you're not this important corner piece to the puzzle you're kind of one of those indistinct pieces off to the side that yeah. you could still see the big picture if it wasn't there but without every piece being in there you don't have a complete picture right that's what coaches are trying to do is get everyone to see the big picture and buy into it and play their part you don't have to play to get that and you don't have to be a player to get that either mm-hmm. but greg berhalter from all indications and in every interaction i've had with him is somebody that commands respect right and I think that that is, that is very important. He has a presence about him. He's uh, the kind of figure that when he says something, you listen. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, that's fine. But that's your choice. And you probably aren't. It's probably not going to go well for you if you don't. Right. That is very, very important. And he's not doing it based off of ego, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes has been a criticism. I th- I don't have much of an opinion because I've never interacted with Jurgen Klinsmann one way or another, but I think there was a a feeling amongst the group that sometimes when Jurgen Klinsmann made decisions, it was because it's what he wanted and it didn't matter what anybody else thought. Sure. And that's fine because Coach has to have this confidence and a belief because he gets hired and fired based on his beliefs. Right, yeah, absolutely. But if the players start to feel like, well, it's just Jurgen's just going to do whatever he wants, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and I've heard this from several players who were included and excluded from Jurgen's squad. Yeah, that can be a problem. Greg Berhalter doesn't seem to me to be the type that will come off that way, mm-hmm. and ultimately, I think that may have been a downfall for Jurgen Klinsmann, and I think that may be something that is a stepping stone for success for Greg Berhalter. Yeah. So, and what do you think this means for the crew going forward? I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of things up in the air for that team as a team, period. Sure, they've got they've got <laughs> a lot of things to get sorted. <laughs> but, you know, it's like they, they sort of built this thing, and obviously there's there's been, you know, rumors swirling about, about, you know, where they're staying and going. Now we hear that, that Austin FC is a separate thing, and, you know, there's going to be – there's going to be some exchange going on, but it seems like people want there to be a team in Columbus. Um, but obviously you built this sort of, you know, they have this sort of indie feeling of like yeah. it's the small market. They have this system. They have Iguain, who is sort of, you know, the straw that stirs the drink there. And he knows how this team works and everything like that. It, 
you see these little cracks starting to form of like you you know the, obviously there's issues about whether whether they're staying who is owning the team there's a new ownership group who's going to be part of looking for a new coach you've lost a coach who's sort of the architect of that feel I mean what does this do what does this do for Columbus crew as a team going forward to next season uh, it's a it's a first of all it's a fantastic way of viewing it Steve you're completely right about that they are at a crossroads in where they go from here because if all indications are true and everything we heard about the Haslam family from the Cleveland Browns taking over a big uh, ownership stake in it, um, they're they're now going to be looking to be under new ownership, maybe looking to, to build a new stadium or right. have a new location under the guidance of a new coach. Which way did the Columbus crew go from here? Yeah. You knew what you were going to get from the Columbus crew for the most part each and every year. Yeah, yeah. It's and almost like an expansion side again in some ways. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of stepwise. But with a, with a this, solid foundation. I mean, they, they obviously, their roster yeah. is, and they've got great players, you know. Certainly. But, but it's different than that. But in terms of it, it, there could be a new stadium, there's a new coach, there's new ownership. Yeah, like, you know, like, like a, <laughs> a rebirth of it, yeah. if you will. And, yeah. and that doesn't necessarily always um, – lead to success right off the bat. And that may be a different thing. Now, I think that they have a very strong roster, a very um, good core group of players that that they have an identity of what they want to do. But what if a coach comes in and he says, my identity and how I see the game played is different? Right. And, I, and make no mistake about it, one coach could come in and absolutely hate everything that a player has done that played every minute of every game. He just doesn't think you're good. Or a coach could come in and think everything about you is great. There's mm-hmm. some uncertainty as a player because yeah. the next coach defines their career. A guy right. who's been sitting on the bench who maybe brings something different to the table that Berhalter thought, nah, for me, that's just not how I see it fitting in with the group. He may come in and say, this guy's in, this guy's fantastic right. for what I want to achieve yeah. and what I want to accomplish, and he's going to be important. And a guy who's played every minute of every game, a guy like Higuain, you said, Coach may come in and say, ah, I just I don't see the need for a number 10 who doesn't really track sure. back too much defensively the way I want to do it. I want to do it a little differently. Yeah. Now there's not a place for a guy who is will go down as, as a legend with uh, Guillermo Barros, Quiloto, and um, you know the, the likes of uh, Hayduck, uh, mm-hmm. Dante Washington. Uh, I'm probably forgetting a whole bunch more names of guys that you know are legends within – Columbus, Eddie Gavin, guys sure. that, you know, you say, who are the ones? Kyle Martino, mm-hmm. naming all these guys. Iguain will go in that group. Yeah. But the next coach may say, no, thank that's you. That's not what I want. Yeah. 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 And and that's that's where this crossroads is for the crew. The 2019 season is going to be interesting if all things fall into place and all the stars align like we hope they do and we've heard they will. Well, then. Let's see what it's going to be yeah, like. Yeah. Well, I'll just say if they're not feeling Will Trap, we could, we could, I would take Will Trap. Yeah, Will, if, you, so. if you're not happy. I mean, you know, hey, here. Right. yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> let, all right, let's move on to a thing that's always sort of I've been curious about, and that's foot dominance. Um, and I wanted to get your input as a player specifically about this. Now, you are right foot dominant. Is yes. That, is that correct? Okay. Um, and I've this is something that, that when I was covering basketball, I was always sort of curious about, like left-handed guys, because everything's a little different. You're used to covering a right-handed guy. They're just doing everything a little differently, right? And so it's a relatively minor thing. I asked a lot of players about this, and I could never get a real satisfactory answer because to me there's sort of two ways to look at this, and I think this applies to soccer as well. Is the game at the pro level at such a high level that a minor thing like sort of your your dominance, your your foot dominance doesn't matter? Or is it at such a high level that something so small can make a big difference because there's a lot of – the margins become smaller on everything? So as a player, 
what is the foot dominance? How does that affect the game for left 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 footed versus right footed players? Well, it's, it absolutely it, it's different in the sense of like a left handed pitcher, like a left handed shooter, like a left handed or left footed soccer player. Um, it is different. It's unique. It is a quality I think that coaches do like when you find a left-footed left-back or mm-hmm. a left-footed left-midfielder. I think it does make you um, unique and maybe more appealing if all things are equal and you have a guy that is a left-footed left-back and a right-footed left-back, you take the left-footed guy. And I, my, my personal thought on this, don't know if anybody will agree to it, I think there might be some agreements. I think left-footed players, I think their left foot – when it's the dominant one is a traditionally guys are better with their left foot. Their, their dominant foot is the, is is stronger than a right footed player who's right footed dominant. But I think, okay, wait, so left footed players, left foot is stronger than a right footed player's right foot. But the flip side is the weaker foot for a left footed player, like their right foot traditionally is just, is just not very good. So if (laughs) you're left footed dominant, more even on a right footed player. Yes. Right right foot and left foot is, is more even keel. Okay. You get like with the left footed, you get like a nine out of a 10 with their left foot, nine or 10. It's very, very good. They're normally very good with their left foot, but then you get maybe like a three or a four with their right foot out of 10. Okay. For a right-footed player, you get like you know a seven or an eight. Right. Sometimes special, you know, whatever the outlier. But then you get maybe like a five or a six with their left foot. So okay. it's, it's so so there's there's more balance between a right foot and a left foot on a right-footed player. Interesting. And there's a bigger disparity between a left foot and a right foot on a left-footed player. Okay. And now, that may be weird because I'm looking at it from like a player standpoint. So for yeah, me, yeah. it makes sense. I hope I'm able to articulate I, that. I, I think that makes sense to me. So how does that? Why does that happen? Is it because is it sort of because a left-footed player you're just instantly going if you're a decent left-footed player you're going to get more attention because you're looking lefties are more lefties rare? have an ability that they they always seem to be able to to create a way to get onto their left foot and you know if you're playing against the left foot his left foot is probably very very good so you want to force him to his right because for most left-footed players their right foot is much weaker. Right. And for right footed players, normally they're they're pretty good both feet. Okay. It's it's a weird it's like a specialty skill okay. with their left foot. And I hope we're not um confusing any listeners because this is this is like the soccer brain and me thinking here so i hope it, well this I is i want your across. soccer brain left footed players for. have an ability that you know they're trying to get to their left foot look at iron robin okay for Bayern. right one of the greatest left footed players to ever play the game you know he's going to get to his left foot right you know that's all he wants to do yet he is still good enough to get to his left foot and when he does it's magic with that foot right Lionel messi with okay. his left foot you know that those players, there's a bigger difference if you get them on their right foot. Right. So when you're playing against a player, you may, if I was defending a guy with a left foot, it would be so drastic my approach defensively to show them to their right foot because I know that there's going to I be see. a difference. Okay. So, like, and if you're defending a right-footed player, you're a little less concerned about trying to push them to the left foot. Exactly. Yeah, because okay. you know that if they go to the left, they're still going to be fairly good with it as well, too. Okay. Okay. I think I think there's a better balance with the right-footed player. Okay. So, and in terms of, so it does affect how you defend yes. an opposing player. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, who, is Schuler left-footed? Schuler is. And, and generally, left-footed players, look at, like, Alexi Gomez, for an instance, okay. right? 
I was trying to remember who was left yeah. footed. I thought it was a, I knew Schuler. I remember because I had a discussion about it with somebody. Left footed players are, are traditionally also better taking set pieces as well. Okay. They're they're. Look, I mean, there's obviously very good right footed set piece takers, but right. when a guy is a left footed player, there's a lot of times you'll see them taking set pieces. Okay. And it also gives you the ability from one side to swing it in. Sure. From the right side of the field when you're attacking, if you get a free kick, the left foot can curl it in, or from the right side you can take a corner kick that's left footed. Right. So a lot of times they're set piece takers as well. And are they set piece takers because their their way of taking a set piece is more unorthodox? Like, is it because you're not they're not people defenders aren't going to be as used the, to the, the most it, effective or? set pieces you can take are the ones that curl in because right. when you are okay when you're when you're taking it a, a set piece guys try to do this and it's a harder skill than people think and we haven't been good enough at it sure since day one here and and everyone that's watched can tell you that yeah we. The the reason you take you take a set piece and it curls in because you want to try to put the cross on goal. Whereas if everyone was was away and nobody was there and you were just by yourself, the cross would look like it would just go in and it would bounce into the net. Because right. the idea is you get ten different people, five attackers, five defenders running towards the ball at the goal. The goalie has to kind of freeze, and you hope that if somebody gets the slightest of touches or sure. they dummy it. It's just going to bounce in. Yeah. And left-footed players offer you that ability to do that from the right side of the field. Right. Whereas, like, so an outswinging, an outswinging corner kick, I mean, it's moving away from the goal. Exactly. So there's just the, I mean, like, I, that, okay, I never thought about it that way, but that makes sense. That it, if, you, if you have an in-swinging corner, then you, if there's nobody there, you imagine it just goes in. You hope, so, that, you hope that sometimes and, everyone jumps, everyone kind of freezes. Is he going to head? Is he going to touch it? Yeah. And then by the time you realize... Maybe he swung and missed at it. Maybe he, he jumped and yeah. he just mistimed it or he just let it go. Yeah. And next thing you know, it bounces into the corner. Or, or you're, if somebody's heading it, you're only really redirecting That's it. You're, it. You're, not, just, you're not like you're just gla- It's called like a glancing it. header yeah. where it just glances off your head. You're using the pace from the ball to just redirect it, to just guide it into the corner. You don't need to try to snap your head to it right. to create power on it. Sure. All you're really doing is just changing the trajectory of it slightly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because there's, the, you know, it's 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 weird because there's all these these beliefs and these patterns of behavior that happen based on it, and and also given the fact, like if if the population were fifty fifty, I don't know if all this would come about, but exactly. because, because lefties it, are like twenty percent of the population, absolutely right. You know this this thing of again, it's like I think like like imagine a kid coming up and he's left footed, and the coach is like, well, you're a lefty, you're playing on the left side. That will naturally lead him to being. It will increase that dominance. He'll probably Absolutely. play less on the right foot. Whereas if you got a right-footed player, coach is probably going to be like, "Well, you got to get some left in there, uh-huh. you know, so you can do both those things." So yeah. now, who now in terms of even like trying to evenly distribute that, like being as good with how frequent is it that somebody could really be essentially ambidextrous with regard to foot? There has to be there has to be a con- like a, a conscious effort to do it. Because, uh, like with kids, when I work with with younger kids, um, really at any age, even in the professional, what you do on on your dominant foot, you need to be practicing with your non-dominant foot. Mm -hmm. So if you do a passing drill and it calls for um, 10 passes at a turn, you should really be saying, okay, right, like if Steve, you and I are doing a passing drill, I pass to you 10 times with my right foot, and then I'm going to do it 10 times with my left. Or... One with the right, one with the left. One with the right, one with the left. You have to do it so much that you become 
accustomed to it where it doesn't feel awkward, where you know how to shape your body, mm-hmm. you know how to turn your hips, you know how to open up your foot to pass it. These are little things that make a big difference. But obviously, naturally, it's just easier to do it on one foot as opposed to the other. So yeah. your inclination is to go, I just want to do more with my yeah. right. Yeah. And so if you're a parent that's coaching a kid or if it's your kid and you want to help them not necessarily become ambidextrous, but become comfortable on both, mm-hmm. do one with the right, one with the left, two with the right, two with the left, where it becomes just second nature. Now, there will always be a slight edge towards the dominant side. Sure. Naturally speaking, that's just how bodies work. Yeah. But you can make them more custom with the left foot. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were saying a minute ago about why there's a better balance with right-footed players between both feet as opposed to maybe a left-footed player and the disparity between the two. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird that that's how bodies work. I mean, I like, and I, I you know, I've <laughs> my soccer career is exceedingly brief and limited to college, like intramural soccer, right? And, no, but you played it and it doesn't matter. You don't have to be at the high level to understand this. Right. Well, the, so the thing is, is that, you know, like early on when I started working here, we had a little pop-up goal in, in the marketing department and, you know, I would kick and I'm right, I'm right-handed. So I would kick with my right foot and I was not good, but I was like, okay, I, I can, every once in a while it would work. I, like I kick once with my left leg and I'm like, it's like trying to hit a ball with a stick. Like it just feels <laughs> like, I'm like, I have no idea. The worst part is when make... you, when you, when you think too much about it Yeah. and you'll see players do it too at times. You, one 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 thing players will say to each other is uh, if if a player like if it gets to your left foot and you're like oh man i've got too much time to think about it right thinking sometimes <laughs> is the root of the problem right if you don't think sometimes and it's just reactionary and you're just you're just doing what is balls ne- coming down exactly you're just playing it, it. Yeah. you're playing it that's sometimes when you're at your best yeah when you have too much time to think about it that's when sometimes you start to go Oh boy, am I doing this? Where's my plant foot? How's my body shape? With all right. the thoughts that go on, and and as crazy as this, this sounds, it may be one or two seconds of real time. I will tell you, in one or two seconds of real time, I may have had a dozen thoughts happen in my head. Sure. Yeah. In that one or two seconds of real time, and along the way, inevitably, one or two or the tenth thought may have been the one that. Threw me completely off right, and sent right. that cross sailing into the, the third yeah. row behind the goal, with, <laughs> yeah. and everyone's going, "What in the world did you just do?" Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was great. It was very interesting. Let's move on to another yes. topic because uh, we're just running out of time here. So let's, talk forever. Let's talk about the Cup final uh, coming up: Atlanta United versus Portland Timbers. Um, who do you have? I mean, it's hard to bet against Atlanta at home, isn't it? It is. I want to do it, but, but it if is. there's and and look, I, I I think if there's a team that can go into Atlanta, frustrate them with their style of play, and also be deadly on the attack on the counter attack, excuse me. Yeah, Portland is the team that can do it. Portland is one of the few teams that I think could go into Atlanta with the circumstances that that it will face MLS Cup, the pageantry around it. 70, 80,000 people in the stadium. Um, I heard something like they only gave Portland 1,400 tickets. Okay. Which Portland, no problem. <laughs> they travel great. They'll sell that. Yeah, no yeah, problem. Yeah. There'll oh, be yeah. more people that'll want to come. But I, I think that um, I, I think the the odds will probably tip the scale towards Atlanta because everything seems to be that all indications that this is going to be their opportunity to win it and the best opportunity for them to win it. Um 
So if I'm a betting man, I think Atlanta wins. But it, I think that Portland has the ability to stifle what Atlanta tries to mm-hmm. achieve. I think Atlanta is very much like the Golden State Warriors in basketball. Mm-hmm. They could go score six goals yeah. easily, no problem. Warriors could put up 23-pointers in a game, and you wouldn't think that was crazy. Right. But at the same time, they kind of live and die by that attack that they have with Almiron, Martinez. You even have a guy like Vialba coming yeah, off the bench. Yeah. Uh, Julian Gressel is very important to their attack from a yeah. deeper position. Yeah. Um, I think that it is it is one of those things that if, if Portland – if Portland imposes their style of play, which is frustrating, which slows down the attack, which creates a a defensive shell that is hard to break down mm-hmm. with two center backs that are very smart, I think it could frustrate Atlanta. And the longer the game goes 0-0, that starts to tip the scales towards Portland. Yeah, yeah. If, if Atlanta gets an early goal and Portland has to come out more, yeah. then that'll yield to their being... A, a more favorable chance of Atlanta winning. Yeah. So the longer the game goes zero zero, I think you start to go. This might favor Portland. Yeah, yeah. The website uh, five thirty eight, which does a lot of analytics and, and stats, looking at is is giving Atlanta seventy seven percent chance of winning. But I think that's too much. I, I don't think it's seventy seven. I think. I mean, obviously they have their methods of doing. Sure. That. Um, it does seem high. I, I I did note that Portland, their last cup, they won in Columbus. Yeah. Uh, on the road, two one. Uh, they so, went to Dallas this year and won on the road. They yeah. went to Kansas City and won on the road. Yeah. I, I think Portland right now knows who they are. They they have a they have an identity which is important to have when going and facing adversity. I think at best this is tips of scale 55, 60% maybe sure, in 60, Atlanta's. 40, yeah. yeah. 60 40 is where I would give it, probably just because of the home field advantage that Atlanta does have yeah. there. But the Portland yeah. Timbers can win on this game. I I would if I if you gave me good enough odds. I'd bet on Portland to win. Yeah, yeah. The Timbers have some of my favorite players to watch. Valeri is one of my favorites. He's and so good. I love Diego Chara. He, he's so, so underrated. So, yeah. He's and, and you see the importance of what a defensive midfielder can do. Yeah. And understands his role and understands when to be the guy that kicks somebody, yeah. when to take a foul, how to do it in a way that isn't so obvious that he's getting booked yep. every other game and he's suspended yeah. for four to five games a year because he accumulates so many cards. Yeah. He's the most frustrating guy to, to play against because he understands the art of the foul. Yeah. And it's a yeah. it's and a dark on, art. And taking on more of a playmaking role this year also. You know, he's been getting forward more. And, Certainly. And doing and a lot Blanco's of work there, been so. incredible. Oh, that Blanco goal. Let's let's just take a moment to mention that. Can Blanco we just goal. like just I mean, I don't know what to we can't show a replay on the on the podcast, but man. Everyone just close your eyes unless you're driving <laughs> and just envision the the most Perfectly struck ball where he comes across it. It's almost like a little bit of a slice. Yeah. Dips at the right time. It's got the right amount of pace and power. And I'll be I'll be honest with you, as a player, I watched the reaction of both him and Diego Valeri. <laughs> Valeri's reaction is Valeri <laughs> is one of those that he realizes exactly what just happened. Yeah. That oh, you know what? Yeah. That was one of the best goals he's probably seen in a very long yeah. time live. Yeah. Um, that wasn't scored by himself. <laughs> right, right. And even Blanco, when he hits it, it takes him a second to kind of realize that that went in. Yeah. That it was an optimistic ball. I mean, he was, you know, I think he was like, I'm putting it on front. 99 right? times like, out of 100, you don't hit that well, or yeah. you try to hit it too hard because you're from distance. Yeah. And you you almost catch it square on in the middle. The way he came across the ball, Steve, is is he, he sh- it's going across his body. Mm-hmm. So naturally, as it's rolling away from you and you start to swing, 
the ball is going to you're going to kind of come across it and it's going to create that slice away yeah. from you right but to get the right amount of power to where it starts to fall up and over yeah. Amelia, yeah. who's not out of position. No, no, no. It wasn't like Darwin chipping, you know, keepers where they're coming out. I mean, it was yeah. like this is this was you. He struck this technically so perfect, and it was the the angle at which he struck it with his foot, where he struck it on the ball, his follow through, the pace, the power. I mean, it it, it is just that that incites a reaction like you got from Valeri yeah. and even from Blanco as he was running away, realizing kind of the brilliance that he just right. <laughs> created yeah. and achieved. It was a, uh, it was a special goal, a goal that was worthy of a winner. And I say it was a winner because at two, two with two away goals, they were going, you know, to, they were going to go through, uh, I, I apologize. That was actually the first goal that would have, that made it one zero because Valeri scored the second one and the yep. third one. But it was the one that that gave them the lead. Yeah, and it was a goal that looked like it would have been worthy of a winner. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere else, yeah. Jeez, that yeah. was. You almost just saw like it was just like game after that. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. You know? Hunt down Valeri's reaction if you have not seen it because it's great. It's like from the reverse angle. It looks to me like it almost looks like what a defender looks like when he scored on. Yeah. Right. Like he just turned around and just puts his head on his hands like. Uh, and, but you realize that it's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And, I and I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're on the, the – if you are a defender on the, the receiving end of, of a goal like that, you actually don't really get, like, mad. Right. You just kind of go, take right, just, get, yeah. just get the ball. Let's just kick off. Like, yeah. Yeah. all right, like, it's, it's a great goal. You know what I mean? Like, you actually don't – there's like, oh, man, like, we know what this means, but it's not like somebody didn't go with the runner and you're going – how could you let him go right there? Like you, you, you cost us the game. Yeah, it was the flip side of it. Like, all right, man, just, yeah. just kick, just get the ball. Let's, Let's just, just kick off. Let's just go. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing, just to touch back on one more thing that you mentioned, which is that this being Atlanta United's probably best shot, uh, and that doesn't mean that they won't have another shot in the future. But it is interesting to me because you do know that that Tata is leaving. Uh, there's you know talk of Almiron leaving, and 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 this is obviously a, a team that is built. Um, to get big players, make them bigger, and then move move them on. Yeah. You know, and this is sort of we're, we're going to see the sort of first test of this, right? Because Atlanta's been a big success story for two years, but now they're going to have to change. They're going to change coaches. They're going to the, there's going to be systematic changes. Some players are going to start moving on. We'll see if they can make it work. But I, that is one thing that gives me, aside from Atlanta's just technical dominance and their their attacking ability, there there is going to be a level of playing for Tata's last game. I think that yeah. will probably infuse this with even more urgency. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a guy that that the players actually like. Um, you know, he, he's a he's a relatable coach. Uh, we felt this way when I played with for Adrian. He was a guy that you really want to do right. well for. Sure. And, and um, you know, saying always had was had was he's a guy that that could tell you to run through a brick wall, and you you'd run through the brick wall and look back and be like, did did I do that right? Did mm -hmm. I do that good enough? Yeah. And and I think Tata has that with his group. Um, They'll be different next year without Almiron. Yeah. If he goes, I think he's gone. I think that he looks like a guy that's ready to play in Europe right now. Yeah. And and Tata's obviously on to his next venture, and they're going to have to figure out a new identity. They've got another player in the pipeline coming up from South America, but does he assimilate to MLS? Like Barco, they paid $18 million for yeah. his 18-year-old kid, and it didn't work out both on the field and off the field for him right away in the yeah. first year. Yeah. Um, I think that's a disappointment for how much money they spent. Right. And they, the, but that's obviously a longer-term play. 
just because you're a big name player with a big transfer fee doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have success right sure. away in this league. Yeah. Um, so this team is built to win this year. Yeah. Um, and then they're going to have to have a version of rebuilding for them. And and I think that that's the the brilliance of MLS is that success is not guaranteed from one season to the next sure. with the mechanisms that are in place. It allows for more parity and teams to have quicker turnarounds, but also bigger downfalls. Sure. Toronto FC. Yeah, good example. So I think that that's that's the the beauty and the the madness and the craziness <laughs> of MLS. Yeah, I'll just say last thing about that. Nice, nice to be able to drop eighteen million dollars and not have it torpedo your whole season. When it exactly like that. right. So I'll just say be that. Nice. I'd be interested to hear. Well, I'll, I'll ask you this, Steve. Who do, who do you think wins? Um, Give me a score prediction. Well, I mean, I, I analytically, I have to go with Atlanta, yeah. and I think you're looking at like 3-1 or something like that. I, ideologically, I want to go for Portland. I went to the Portland game that we played this year. I heard you I, talk I about that with those. Kendra. You love Portland. Oh, I, lo- I loved that stadium. Uh, the fans were amazing. Um, I, I like that feel. You know, yeah. so uh, you know, I obviously I'm pulling for I'm pulling for Portland, but with the understanding that I think Atlanta wins. Yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to hear like what Cal would say normally when he'd be in your spot. Would he give? Would Cal normally give you a score right here? Would he give you a prediction? Um, would he take a grandstand or would he? Would he politically correct given, it? I think he's given some some score predictions before. I think if it's I think if it's one zero, Portland it's a wins. Portland win. If it's three one, it's going to be an Atlanta win. Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't. How do I see it going? Do I have to put someone? I'll say, give me give me the one zero Portland. All right. Set. Give I like me the it. one zero four. I like upset. it. Let's go. It's, it Let's may go. sound crazy. We'll get better odds on it. We'll win more money if it's right. If there not, we'll say, well, there you go. Whatever. Atlanta pulled it off. Yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, thanks for coming in. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this was nice. I'm glad everybody else was busy. Yeah. And I could fill I in. Literally, I went all the way down the list. Absolutely. And you do a great job with this, Steve. <laughs> you, do, you do it. This is a fantastic <laughs> listen. I'm a I'm a fan of the show. Um, you and Cal do a great job with this, and uh, hopefully, I did a. Didn't do a disservice. You did. You did great to the to the big seat of Callum Williams and the I big think, shoes to fill. I think the only real threat so far has been Brent uh, Coleman was 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 the real threat to Cal's position. So well, I, I, I would co-host a podcast with Brent. I, I think soccer player is the number one job for him in his career. The number two would be a poker player. Yeah, and then three. three if that, neither yeah. one of those two worked out, then maybe <laughs> he'll want this job. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us for the thirty seventh Sound of the Loons podcast. Be sure to leave us a nice review on iTunes, or at the very least, a five star rating. Uh, you can follow the team on Twitter at MNUFC. You can follow Jamie at Jamie Watson 77. What's 77? That was my old number when I played. Oh, okay. Or all there's right. 76 other Jamie Watsons. Sure. <laughs> you went through you all should, of them. You should have put this as the 37th <laughs> episode of The Sound of Loons, but at 37th in the program history, number one in the listeners' hearts. Right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Steve. You can follow me at Steve Ventris, and remember, there's only one person in this whole world like you, and people can like you exactly as you are.